We are in 1 John still this morning. Uh, We're continuing this series uh, uh, about stability because John, at great expense and at great effort, has written this letter. Actually, he writes a series of, of at least three letters that we know of, that we have, to these churches that he is a revered elder in, probably, an overseer. And he's writing these letters because the people there, like us, are living confusing times. People are doing all manner of crazy things, claiming all all different things about how you should live and what you should do and, and, and what's true and what's not, and it's just disorienting. And so he's writing to them to talk about what it means to be stable. And so he's already gone through all of this, and then and he's kind of introduced ideas, pulled back, introduced something else, kind of circled back. He, he's doing this thing where he almost uh, spirals or, or moves back around and picks up old ideas and then moves them forward inch by inch in this ancient technique, uh, rhetorical technique, to just build up all of this information. And he kind of stops at this point and almost gives a summary, and it looks poetic. On the screens, I notice it's not written this way, but if you have a, a Bible, you'll notice that starting in verse 12 of the second chapter, of John, uh, it's kind of the, the author editors probably in your Bible uh, kind of broke it out, right? Kind of to show you that it's not a poem, but at the very least highly structured, intentionally highly structured. And you'll notice it when we read it. But this is almost like a summary of growth in the Christian life, or at least points us to things. Let me, let me read it to you. He says this, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. It's almost this poetic structure to sum up a lot of the things that he's already said. He's, he's, at least, at very least, there's, there's callbacks to the things that he's already said. He mentions children twice, fathers twice, young men twice. And yes, it's masculine, but that no way, uh, no way leaves out uh, young women and, and, and women uh, in the congregation. Uh, they're all included. He's just showing this thing at different stages of life, how these things might apply, how we grow, right? The Christian life, uh, it's not linear. If you are not a follower of Jesus or before you were a follower of Jesus and when you became a follower of Jesus, it has not been linear. I've never met a single person in my entire life that's like, I started here, I went to class one, class two, class three, class four, class five, and I'm working my way up to the master's class, one day I'm gonna hit the PhD level. No, it's been a series of tumbles and falls, scraped knees, busted elbows, getting back up, climbing back down, picking up, waking up, going, how did I even get here? That's what the Christian life is like. It's this wrestling. It almost feels like being thrown into a dryer and just tumbled, right, sometimes. As you wrestle with these ideas because it's so complicated. So he says this. He says, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven. He, he goes back and, and reminds us of what he's already said. That the very basic thing that we learn as children, as children in the faith is, that your sins are forgiven. Now, don't get me wrong. This is also not only the kindergarten class, it's the PhD class too, right? Because we have to apply this constantly. And, and, and at some level in our life, in our Christian life, when we begin to struggle, it's because we haven't applied this truth rightly. 
So often we find ourselves looking around at what we're doing, we decide we're gonna advance in the Christian faith and we decide to buckle down and we're gonna try harder and we're gonna do the next thing and we lose sight of the fact that your sins are forgiven and you had nothing to do with it. You did not earn it, Christ accomplished it for you. It's applied to your life by faith and faith alone and there's nothing that you can do to earn it. That is day one Christianity, forgiveness. It's also elastic Christianity as well. Learning to know that you are forgiven is an amazing way to live. And so he says this twice. He says, you have to know that you're forgiven. And then he says, I'm writing to you, you young men. I'm writing to young men because you've come overcome the evil one. And then down here in verse 14, I'm writing to young men because you were strong. The word of God abides in you, in you and you have overcome the evil one. He's reminding you of a thing that he's already said, that God has placed his spirit inside of you and you have that strength. You may feel weak. If you were belong to Jesus, if you were a follower of Jesus, if you have been brought into that relationship with the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit resides inside of us, and he gives us the strength for these changes. He works these changes inside of us as we live with the, in that relationship with the Father and the Son. It is by his power and his strength that you do these things. And you learn that because when you become a Christian, you're like, yes, I believe these things. I believe I'm forgiven. And now let me go work on these things and work these things out. And so often older Christians will say, I want you to take a deep breath. I need you to listen. I need you to listen to the spirit. That's where you're going to get the strength. You're all gung-ho and you're all, I love your heart. I love your spirit. But I need you to know that the Holy Spirit will work these things out inside of you. And he will not quit till he is done. So he he reminds them there what he's already said. He said, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. A reference to Jesus that he's mentioned earlier. I write, and he says again, I mention you, fathers, because you, children, you've known the father, and fathers, you have known him who is from the beginning. Talking about you are in a relationship. This is accomplished because you are in relationship. John starts out his letter Casting salvation, talking about it, taking that gem of salvation that just so many got so many different faces on it, and turning it and looking at it at a certain angle. And the angle that he's talking about it is relationally. Salvation is at some level relational, at, at, at core level relational. He says you, this is how that you know that you belong to God is that you've entered into a relationship with the Father and the Son. That's what he says in the opening of his letter. And he's reminding them here that this is a relationship. Right? These are the facts that you have to constantly be applying to your heart and your mind as you grow in the Christian life. Then the next obvious question is, how do I now live in this world? If these are the facts, these are the realities of who we are, we are in a relationship with God, we are forgiven for our sins, we have this amazing future, we have this Father who loves us, we have all of, there's the strength of the Holy Spirit is placed inside of us, then now how do we go live in the world? How do we think about the world and what it's like? How do we understand life? How do you navigate it? If these things are true, what now? What does that mean about how I think about the, the city that I live in, the state that I live in? How do I think about my marriage? How do I think about anything that I do based on these 
realities. And different people in various places across the world and across time have thought about these things in very, very different ways. There are so many different ways to think about our life, to think about how we exist. And it's impacted by a number of factors. We have to constantly be aware that how we think about the world is heavily influenced by the experiences that we had, our family of origin, our country of origin, the time in which we live, which is one of the beautiful things about the Christian faith, uh, that we do not just have our experience reading the Bible, but people across the world, across time, from different cultures, receiving it and seeing it in different ways. One of my favorite things to do uh, when I get a chance to talk to people who serve in other countries uh, uh, is to hear what parable, what parts of parables land differently with different people. Talked to a guy in, who was a minister, a missionary in South Sudan for a long time, and he was talking about how people hear the, uh, hear the, um, the, the uh, parable of the prodigal son. And, and me, my tendency is, over time it's changed, but, but it, when I hear it, I think our American tendency is to go, yes, yes, God forgives. I'm the older brother or I'm the younger one who's saying, like, this is the thing that we kind of get hung up on. Who are we in this parable? And he says the thing that they, gets people hung up there is not those parts, it's the forgiveness part. Why would someone forgive? Why, why, why would, like, and now I have to go be like this and I have to forgive? No, we struggle, we, we accept in America, we accept the forgiveness part and struggle with the justice part. Other parts of the world, they have no problem accepting the justice part, that's the good news. The having to go forgive part, that's hard because they've seen horrible things. So, so different parts of the world, we get to all over, they get to speak into this and we get to hear through books and preaching and teaching all of this amazing information about what it means and how we're supposed to engage in this life. Now, 1 Peter 2.11, a very famous verse, Peter writing a letter, says, Behold, beloved, I, be, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Sojourners and exiles. In the, in the tradition that I used growing up, the, the, uh, the Bible version that we used, it said that you were aliens and strangers. I love that. That was a big thing for us, Alien Strangers. There's this band, DeGarmo and Key. That's right, DeGarmo and Key. Word. Uh, that, that sang this song, and I, I remember it to this day. It was, uh, it was uh, all, all my closest friends are aliens and strangers. <laughs> In a very 90s, like, you know. Uh, it was amazing. Uh, uh, so we are, as we are supposed to be aliens and strangers, if that's what Christians are called to be, if these realities are true, how do we think about our lives? How do we think about the world that we are in? So for example, can I be a good Christian and enjoy my secular job at a company that has different values than I have? Or to be a great Christian, do I need to go into ministry? I grew up that way. There was a very clear hierarchy of people, right? There were the people who came on Easter and, Easter and Christmas, the people who came every Sunday morning, people who came Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, Preachers, missionaries. That's how it was. That was the hierarchy. And if you want to be a better Christian, you just moved up and down that ladder. That's how you felt anyway, right? Can I to live this world? Can I be a good Christian and, and engage in work for a company that has different values than I have? Can I live in a nice house? Can I appreciate secular art? Or am I resigned to listening to DeGarmo and Key for the rest of my life? Right? How do these things play out? And there's different answers over time. Uh, some people offer what I would consider very simplistic answers. Uh, like our basic religious view is 
the world is bad, right? We as the church have to create all of our own art. We have to create all of our own thing and anything that happens outside of the church, it's evil and it's bad and it's wicked. I grew up in a tradition where you couldn't play Uno because Uno were cards, cards were gambling, you're probably going to hell. No Yahtzee, that's a dice, you're a step away from owning a pit bull. Like, that, like, it was just like that's how it was, right? Like, so you, it was this kind of pull away from everything and we have to have everything right here for us. The joke I've told many, many times, people have been here a long time, like I, this is a true story is why I say it all the time, is I kept throwing away all my Led Zeppelin CDs and then buying them again, you know? Number of times, I'd, like, can I have this? If I'm going to be a good Christian, I guess I got to throw away these CDs. And then, you know, like, a few years go by and you're like, nah, I'm buying all this back, right? And it just goes through this cycle. Can I appreciate Christian, things that aren't Christian, but that maybe are beautiful and good? How am I supposed to understand the world, right? That's the question we're asking. And the simplistic view says, uh, a very simplistic view says that, that we are supposed, everything that that is spiritual is good and everything that is material and physical, everything in the world is bad. Another simplistic way of living is this is all that there is. The world is all you have. This is it, man. Eat, drink, and be merry. I saw a thing this week. Somebody uh, was doing something very dangerous. They were on a a line, a wire across a, a canyon, and the caption said, you will only live once, you will die, and no one will remember you. So, live it up. It's a very simplistic way of living. This is all there is. Enjoy it while you can. Another simplistic way, I think, maybe a little more nuanced, but another simplistic way uh, of understanding how I'm supposed to go live in this world, especially maybe as a Christian, is that you have to have a balanced view, right? Like, you have some, um, most of us, like, like, live here, and I think it's possibly a dangerous place. Uh, it's informed but confused. And so what we say is like, well, no, there's some good things in the world, and you, you can enjoy them, but you also need to, like, but you, you have to, you kind of do both, and you have to have a balanced view, it, like there's like the the like there's the, the the religious view, the worldly view, and we try to like slide somewhere in the middle. And I think the biblical view actually is just it's just a whole different thing that kind of sits outside of it, and, and gives us a much richer, deeper, yes, more difficult way to comprehend and assess in our own heart, but a much richer and beautiful, more beautiful way to live. This is what John says in verse fifteen. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride and possessions, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do not love the world. Now, here's the deal. Uh, it's a little disorienting for me. Especially coming in the Bible. Especially coming from John. I don't know if you guys remember my last week's memory verse. It's possibly the most famous memory verse of all time. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
Jesus said that John's the one that wrote it down. He's the reason Tim Tebow has it underneath his eyes when he played football and people hold signs up, right? Because John, John wrote that down. God so loved the world that he came and died. Also, here's a letter that says, don't love the world. Same word, by the way. Don't be like running to the Greek, like, mm. well, I'm, I think in the Greek it's two different words. No, it's not. It's the same word in the Greek. I looked it up. Cosmos, if you're nerds. So here's the deal. When we cannot ever, ever, ever underestimate how deeply God loves the world that he made. He loves it so much. He created it. And the rhythm in Genesis is beautiful. It says God creates this. He makes the sun and the moon, and it is good. He separates the uh, waters, and the land comes up, and it is good. He creates insects and birds and animals, and it is good. It's a rhythm after rhythm after rhythm. And when he finishes, after he creates humanity, and he finishes this, this is what he says. He looks at what he had made, and it was very good. His world is very good. And it's not just you're like, well, yeah, but that was before the fall. No, if you go back, even Paul writing Timothy, in 1 Timothy, he says this. He says that God made everything, and it's good. Like he affirms, even in the New Testament, this truth and this reality that what he has made, what he has done, is good. God loves his creation and he sees it as good. He sees human beings as good. It isn't evil. It will be redeemed. The world will be redeemed. He cares about his creation and you and I should as well. But not just the material world, but humans. God creates humans and then you know what he does? He places his image in them. He breathes his spirit in them to give them life. He, he cares about them so, so deeply that when they sin and rebel, he doesn't say, you know what? I'm done, I'm starting over. He says, you know what? I've got a plan and I'm gonna bring them back to me. That's how much he loves humans. You know how much he loves humans? He loves humans so much that God became flesh and dwelt among us. He took on human flesh. God became killable because of how much he loves humans. Not only that, right now, in heaven, wherever that is, in eternity outside of time and space, wherever it is that Jesus is right now, he's human. Isn't that amazing? There is no other religion or philosophy that I've ever encountered that gives more dignity to being human than than Christianity. Declaring that God became flesh, unbelievable. If you wonder where the idea that the modern idea that we have that just kind of exists in the, in the West right now, that human beings have dignity and should be treated a certain way, that's a biblical idea. Humans didn't make that up. For most of humanity, people didn't think that. They thought our tribe good, their tribe bad. Why? Why? Because this is our tribe and that's their tribe. Why should we care about them? Christianity comes along and says, nope created in God's image, and they have a value. Have value. God cares about his creation. He cares specifically, intensely about humanity. This dictates how we live. We have to now go love our neighbor. He created a world with so much amazing beauty, so many people that are unbelievably amazing that it is breathtaking to think about. 
He created a world full of good things. Also, we're not supposed to love the world, right? That's what he said. When, when he writes here, John, he's not confused. He, when, he wrote for God, when he wrote down, for God so loved the world, he was talking about God's love for this, his, his intention to redeem not just us, but all of creation. We're not going to spend eternity floating on clouds playing harps. He is remaking the earth. Heaven and earth will meet unbelievable. But here when he says do not love the world, what he's talking about is not so much the material things, it's our attitudes about what's going on. It's our attitude about the things. It's about what's going on inside of us. The world is this, when he talks about the world here, he means the world's general approach, its attitude and the way it thinks about things. It's um, the internal assessment. It's, it's, the, it's the value that we assign to material things. It's not the things in themselves. It's not jobs. It's not houses and food and cars. It's not even money that's bad or wrong. It's how we value those things. It's where we put them in the hierarchy of the things that we love. Our disordered loves, Augustine talks about that. It's how we assign value to these things. Our reaction is going on inside of us. Is it a worldly reaction or a godly one? When we look at the things of this world. But loving the world is letting our hearts, letting our souls assign improper values to things. He says this, he says, for all that is in the world, and then he lists it, the desires or lusts of the flesh, the desires or lusts of the eyes, and pride in possessions. He begins to walk through these things, the things that we feel, that we experience, our lust for this, our over-desire for something that may be good in this world, something that we see that may be good, but it's our over-desire for this thing that looks good, and then our pride in having those things. This is it. This is the thing that he's talking about, that we, that we engage in this worldly way of understanding things, or I need to get all that I can for me to make me feel good about myself, to make me feel safe. That's the pride in the things. Or if I just had that, if I could have that one thing over there that's amazing, right? I use food as an example a lot, right? Because it's easy. I think most people kind of can kind of, also it's a problem for me, but I think most people can relate. Food, when you want a thing, is food bad? No, food is great. Food is a good thing. It's a great gift that God has given us. Can it be over-desired and given an improper place? For sure it can. For sure it can. And that's what he's talking about here. The worldly view takes things that God has given us that are good and beautiful, and it assigns them a value that they don't deserve and that they can't sustain. They can't hold and it's incredibly short-sighted is what John says. Um, I had to get glasses a few years ago because I had insanely good vision for almost my entire life. And then one day, it's been downhill slide ever since. Can't see. All of a sudden, things that were far away, I couldn't understand, but I could, I could see the things that were up close. Uh, I was nearsighted. I could see the things near, but I couldn't see the things far away. Uh, and so, but the older I get, there's actually a specific range. My arms are almost at the length where, like, I can't, like, I can't hold, like, sometimes I'm trying to read a thing, I have to hold it away out here. But most of the time, I can see things close, 
but I can't see things far. And John says that when we value the things of this world, we give them an improper value, the things right in front of us, when we elevate them higher than they should be, it's short-sighted. We're only seeing this and we're not thinking about eternity. He's gone through all of this, that you have eternal life, that you were united with the Father, the one who was from the beginning. He's gone through all of these things. And here's the deal. When we take a job, when we take a thing that is good work, and we apply an improper value to it, it's short-sighted. When we take good things, food, good things, children, good things, relationship, and we give them improper values, we allow our heart to assign to them improper values, higher values than they deserve, everything goes wonky and our lives become very unstable because it's not what we were built for. Because here's what you were built for. You were built for eternity. And when we're short-sighted and only look what's in front of us, we make decisions based on those things. If we give them an elevated value, then they begin to make, make, have influence on how we act and how we behave and what we do. If, for example, you say a very good thing, family. Family is everything. And you begin to believe that and actually live that out, and family begins to take an idea in your, in your mind that's above everything else, it's led to all sorts of immoral things. I'll take out that family to protect this family. I'll lie and I'll cheat to care for and protect my family. I will work so hard to protect my family. I will burn myself out. And everything gets out of whack. And guess what? Your family was never designed to sustain that kind of pressure. You look at your kid and go, I'm going to give you every single opportunity. I'm going to give you everything that I never had. I'm going to pour all of these things into you, and it's going to be amazing, and you're going to have this amazing life. Guess what? You've put too much pressure on them. You've given them too high of value. You've assigned to them way too much, and you're going to break them, and you're going to end up losing the thing that was good. Does that make sense? It gets out of whack. It gets wonky. Work is a good thing. It was made for you. But when you all of a sudden begin to feel that I can never do enough, I'll never get enough done. If I could just work hard, if I could just get to that next level, everything will be okay. If I could just buy this house and everything would be fine. If I could just have this thing here, then everything would be okay and I would be happy. When we begin to do that, we've assigned improper value to it. And not only will it not sustain that, it will use you up. It will use you up and not care about you at all. We make decisions based on these things that are so immediate and we miss the fact that they will not last as long as you will. You think about that ever? They won't, these things, your job, your, your nations, cultures, those things are mortal. You and I, we're immortal and we'll outlast them all. And when we make decisions based on the thing that's right in front of us, even if it's the 70 years, 80 years of our life right in front of us, and that's the sole thing we consider because we're so nearsighted, you're missing an absolute eternity. Make decisions not based on what will affect you next year. Make decisions today based on what will affect you in 10,000 years. Isn't that amazing that you get to do that? You get to make decisions that have 10,000 year consequences because what we do, how we live, how we respond, what we do with our heart, what we do with our affections, they impact our eternity. What we give ourselves to impacts our eternity. Unreal. 
we give ourselves to the wrong things, we are being short-sighted. And what ends up happening is those things end up abusing us, abusing us. It's never as good as we think it is. It will eventually destroy us. It uses us up, and we keep returning, going back to these things over and over and over again because we don't know any other way, or maybe we just believe we can't be happy any other way. I don't know why I keep returning to my career to make me fulfilled or jumping from career to family uh, to make me uh, fulfilled. Uh, Every time I do it, it never pans out. It it always leaves me lacking. It always leaves me wanting. When I assign the wrong value to these things, when when I give them more value than they deserve, it never works out. And I keep returning to these things over and over and over again because we believe somewhere in our heart that we can't be happy without it. We, we return to these abusive relationships with these things because we think we can't do better, we don't deserve better, that there's nothing else that, out there. Loving the world, giving it an inordinate place in our heart, giving it too much, weighing it out of proportion, is asking too much of them. It's asking far too much of them and they just can't sustain it. So we hate that part of the world. We don't love that part of the world. But if we say on the other hand that we hate this world and we withdraw and we ignore this world, we're being too farsighted. Right? If we only look at eternity. If we only look at eternity, we are missing elements of eternity right in front of us. The people that you interact with on a daily basis, eternal beings like you. If we only look at the eternal, we're missing so many of God's good gifts. Can I only eat food that's made by a Christian chef? Can I only watch art? No, but we must watch and engage discerningly. Here is the reality. The world produces amazing things, beautiful art, uh, beautiful uh, masterpieces. And when we engage with them properly, standing outside of them, looking at what it has to say, taking the parts that are true and saying, yes, that is true, therefore it is of God. They've stumbled on a thing and didn't even know it. You can do that. Now, does that mean that everything's on the table? Now, if Chris has said, you know what, like we can engage with the world, let's just go. No, everything's permissible, but it may not be beneficial. It it requires wisdom to wrestle with these things, to know, you know what, maybe your kids shouldn't be listening to the Wu-Tang Clan, right? Like maybe that's just not wise. How about this? I grew up, I grew up, uh, uh, it's not hard for you to imagine based on what I've already said, you can't dance. Dancing was just like the worst thing that you could possibly do in sixth grade. Like that was it, that was it, basically. Uh, I assume for a long time that's just how you got pregnant was dancing. And so the, the, to have that hard and fast rule that dancing was wrong, dancing is a sin. I look back at it now, I'm like, I, for a long time I was like, that's so stupid to make up rules like that. To make it, that doesn't say the Bible doesn't say that, that dancing is evil. That's, that's, so, that's so crazy that they made up that rule that you shouldn't dance. You know what I think now? I think the same thing, but now with a little bit more wisdom we go, it's pretty good wisdom and telling a 16-year-old to be real careful about what he does, what she does. Don't put yourself in a position that might help you make bad decisions, right? Like, wisdom is necessary. If you want to live stable in an unstable world, you want to appreciate what God has given us, the good gifts he's shown us, and you want to handle that, handle that well, you want to keep eternity in mind, but also know that that starts right now, that we're not waiting to get to eternity, that eternity begins now. It's part of what we are now. It's not just a straight line, but what exists outside of time and space. If you want to start experiencing that now, 
it's going to require wisdom. It's going to require not being farsighted, not being short-sighted, and it's definitely going to require don't try to be balanced. I think the most dangerous thing that we can do is just dabble, right? I'm going to dabble over here. I think this, probably, this is probably okay. It doesn't seem too bad. I think I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to dabble over here because you're doing it without thinking. You're thinking like, yeah, I'm going to live this life, but I'm just going to kind of sample what's out there. And you're trying to live in two different worlds, and it's going to tear you apart. That's probably the most unstable place that you can be. It's dabbling in these two worlds because you're not being critical, and you end up with something that's just watered down. Thinking in a worldly way is deadly. Desiring things in a worldly way is deadly. Thinking the things of this world are evil, yes, you will miss some joys and you'll possibly end up treating these people badly, but also just to begin to drink wholly what the world thinks and how the world thinks, it's also deadly. What you actually need is this biblical way that steps outside of it, that looks at the entire narrative that begins in a garden and ends in a city, that begins uh, with man dwelling with God and it ends with man dwelling with God again, and you look at this whole whole beautiful grand narrative of what's going on, eternity will one day invade, and you step outside of it and you see the whole thing as one, what is near has its place, and you can only see it when you understand it has its place in, an outline, in, 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 a, in a timeline of eternity. That doesn't make sense. Eternity doesn't have a timeline, but you know what I mean, like a very big scale. It is good, but it is not all there is. What is near has its place. It isn't ultimate. The best things that we have now, the Bible says, we can enjoy, but they're just shadows of what's to come. Shadows of what's been promised. And then here's the interesting thing. Here's what John says. One of this, of this whole passage, the thing that fascinates me the most. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why do we love the world? Why do we love the world? Because the love of the Father is not in us. Interesting. I listened to a sermon uh, by a guy not too long ago. Uh, uh, he, a guy I know. Uh, and it, he starts talking about fathers. And he starts, <laughs> he starts just listing off song lyrics. I was stunned at the num- that number he came up with. The number of song lyrics he came up with about fatherlessness. I n- never heard some of them, but... Uh, apparently, he mentioned one pop star. I think it was Kelly Clarkson. So the opening line of one of her songs is, the only, talking about her father is, the only thing I remember about you is your back. Ugh. I mean, it's, it's so messed up. I, I grew up listening to Cats in the Cradle, right? When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when. That's, you know? Fatherlessness is a thing. There was another band that I knew the name, but I'd never listened to him. Oh, it was Death Cab for Cutie. It's got a line in one of their songs, apparently, where it says, he took his, he said, uh, the outside, the ashes of your urn have salt water on them, and when I threw your ashes to the sea, the wind blew them back in my eyes, and it stung my eyes, which is appropriate, because that's all you did in my life. Fatherlessness, fatherlessness hits us. It hurts us. It damages us because we were made for that kind of love. We were made for that kind of love and in a sinful and a broken world, damaged relationships like, like that crush us. 
We were made for the love of the Father. And when we begin to live like this is all there is, when we begin to trust the things in this world to make us happy and make us satisfied and satisfy us, the thing at the core of that that is wrong, the thing at the very core is not so much the dancing or the playing Yahtzee or whatever it is. The thing at the core of it is that's the most harmful thing to us is that there's just unbelief. We don't really believe that God loves us like he says he does. Without that, how can I believe that God loves me? I don't feel loved, so I need that. Maybe that will make me feel loved. And the core of our hearts is just an an inability to, to, to reckon with, to deal with the fact that there is a God who loves you. There is a Father who loves you, that you can know, that you can be in a relationship with, that he gives his spirit to you so that you can be comforted, that you can, he'll strengthen you to create you in the type of child that he longs for you to be. It is simply not believing. The reason these things appeal to us so much is that we are really just looking for love. I resisted the urge to say in all the wrong places. The, uh, we're looking for love. This, this will make me okay. This will make me safe. This will protect me. This will feed me. This will make me happy. You know what will make me happy? Just in one more slice of cheesecake. And you know what? It's good, but it doesn't make me happy. You know what pizza can't cure? Sadness. I've tried. I'll probably try again. And what it, the core of it is, is an unbelief that the Father loves me. That's probably my worst sin. Probably my worst sin is that I struggle to believe that God loves me. And this narrative here, this story, uh, eternal story, it is a story of a God who loves you so much that when you were bitter and angry and hated him, he chased after you and died for you anyway. That's the story. And we put our focus on other places. We put our attention in other places. When we begin to get so nearsighted because of where our attention is drawn, it leads us to make bad decisions. It makes us to make immediate decisions instead of decisions that affect us in 10,000 years. So what we do is, what we do is, we create rituals. Instead of looking with our eyes at what's out there that we could have, lusts, right? Of our eye, what we begin seeking for, comfort and pleasure in this world, this temporary stuff, instead of creating habits that put us in those places, we simply create habits that put us in a place of teaching us and showing us and driving deep into our souls that you are deeply loved by a father. I wish I had something more for you. I wish I had, I don't know, like some kind of bumper sticker you could put on your car and just remind you and just declare who you are. So I don't know, some kind of app I could give you. But here's the thing that's worked for a long time. The spiritual disciplines of opening your Bible and reading and meditating on it. The spiritual disciplines of showing up for worship. The spiritual disciplines of serving and loving others. This is how we discover and know how deeply loved we are. This is it. All of the trying to restrain ourselves from committing this sin again or committing that sin again, all this effort, we're just pulled to it, looking for a thing that it will never give us. And our greatest sin is probably unbelief. You are deeply loved. The best pleasure here is but a shadow of what is promised to us.
And don't avoid them because you think you're going to get punished. Instead, in the spirit, knowing that you're a child, focus on the fact, dwell on the fact, believe that when we confess, when we repent, when we drive deep into our brains that God is love, with that comes, we fear him, with that comes this wisdom of how to handle the good things of this world. Maybe it's not okay for me to listen to Zeppelin. Maybe it gets in my brain and teaches me worldly habits and thoughts. Maybe it's fine. Maybe I can appreciate John Bonham for what he is, an absolute genius. It requires wisdom and wrestling and careful, careful consideration. But above all, it takes being disciplined. To apply regularly how deeply loved you are, the strength that this comes from, that you are given from your sins, the daily, multiple times a day application of these things, that's what will stabilize you in a world that's pulling you in a thousand different directions. That's what will stabilize you trying to figure out how I'm supposed to navigate this relationship or that relationship, is when we place Christ first and he is ultimate, all of those other good things that cannot withstand the pressure of being the center of our universe, they fall into their proper place and you actually find you can love them even better. Because they're in their proper place. You haven't asked too much of them. When knowing that we are deeply loved, when meditating on the cross, this is how sinful we are, this is how awful we are, and this is at the exact same time how deeply loved we are in that sin. Meditating on God's love for us, dwelling on it, applying it over and over and over again. His grace, his grace, his grace, his mercies are new every day. This is it. This is the way we navigate life. This is the way we have wisdom. But here's the deal. We've got to do that together because whew, I need you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the wisdom that you've given us in your scriptures, for how you've shown us and taught us what it means to live. Not just what it means to live, but how to live. What a gift. <laughs> Give us Give us wisdom. Give us hearts for your word. This this constant declaration of how deeply loved we are. We are constantly looking all over your good creation for something to make ultimate. To make something, to give something the Priority, the place of priority in our life. Nothing else can sustain it and nothing else deserves it but Christ. Our sacrifice, the sacrifice made that we may have life purchased, redeemed. We have no hope, only comfort in life and in death is that we are not our own but belong body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Make us more like him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.